Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 258, The Battle of Hong Kong. Last time, we covered the fall of Wake Island, and just before that, the devastating air attacks on MacArthur's airfields on Luzon, and the fall of Guam. Moreover, Japanese troops had already landed or crossed into Thailand, with some of those troops bound for Burma to the northwest, while others had landed in northern Malaya with Singapore as their objective. As for British-controlled Hong Kong, it was put on notice, because there had been no declaration of war, at 8 a.m. December 8th, it was 2 p.m. at Pearl Harbor, when 35 Japanese dive bombers raided the island. The garrison's five planes were destroyed, as were seven more civilian planes. From that moment on, as had the air personnel on wake, the support crews served as infantry. Yet, over the next several days, American pilots of the China National Aviation Corporation flew in and landed at Kai Tak Airport on the mainland, just above the island of Hong Kong in Kowloon Bay, and evacuated 275 people, one of them being Madame Sun Yat-sen, the widow of Sun Yat-sen, the first president of the Republic of China. Like so many places in Asia, London had already decided not to try to defend Hong Kong, but told Major General Christopher M. Malty to hold out as long as possible. He was to do this with his six battalions of Indian and Canadian infantry and their 28 field guns. Added to this, not that it would make a difference, was his naval contingent, an old destroyer and eight motor torpedo boats, which mattered not at all to the six Japanese infantry battalions, with many more to come, stationed just above the Hong Kong territory. Malti was determined to hold out for a week, maybe ten days, and this hope was centered around the Gin Drinkers Line, named after a nearby bay of that same name. The line was located up in the New Territories, stretching in the west where today's port of Hong Kong is located, east to Port Shelter, near present-day Clearwater Bay, and was some 18 kilometers south of the Shenzhen River, which demarcated where China stopped and British-controlled Hong Kong began. The idea of defending the island this way came from the Maginot Line. Though not expected to hold out indefinitely, those who came up with it were thinking resistance could last perhaps six months. The line stretched for 17 kilometers, but was not a solid construct. Instead, it was a series of defensive positions, bunkers, concrete fortified machine gun posts, trenches, and artillery batteries, all connected by paths. 
All concerned knew that Hong Kong could not hold out indefinitely. But that wasn't the point, to London's thinking. Of course, the colony would be lost, taken by overwhelming Japanese forces. But it would be reclaimed by the British when the time came. Besides, to not fight for Hong Kong might give the Chinese ideas. That could not be allowed to happen. No, London's plan was for the defense of Hong Kong to hold out as long as possible, to be a thorn in the enemy's side, while the people below the gin drinker's line were evacuated, and to deny the harbor to the enemy, all the while waiting for help from either Singapore or from MacArthur in the Philippines. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't want to do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Hong Kong began to be administered by the British in 1841 with the Treaty of Nanjing, which ended the First Opium War. In time, the British colony was expanded beyond the island proper to include the Kowloon Peninsula, just above Victoria Harbor, that separated the two, as well as a section of mountains above Kowloon. These additional possessions were known as the New Territories. All this British-controlled land was separated from China proper by the Shenzhen River. When war came to Hong Kong, the recently promoted Major General Malti was leading just under 14,000 troops, all ranks, which included a medical staff and Xinjiang ambulance personnel. As for actual fighting men, there were just under 9,000 British and Canadian troops and 4,400 Indian and Chinese troops, which included a Hong Kong Chinese regiment that was made into a machine gun battalion just before the fighting started. Besides the 28 field guns mentioned, the Commonwealth forces had the standard coastal artillery, which was impressive if the enemy attacked from the sea. Though, the battalion's guns only had 100 shells apiece, with 200 more in reserve for the entire island. Further, the Punjabis had only just recently received their vehicles and mortars, so very little training occurred before December 8th. However, the Canadians would be without their trucks, as they were being carried by an American transport that was redirected to the Philippines once Pearl Harbor was attacked. But that was not the worst of it for the Canadians. Many that were sent to Hong Kong were classified as C-class, as in unfit for foreign service, due to years of stagnant garrison duty and a lack of training. To finish off this sad tale, 12% of the Canadians were untrained recruits. On December 6th, Chinese reconnaissance reported that at least three Japanese infantry divisions were just north of the town of Shenzhen. To take Hong Kong, the Imperial Japanese Army 
and Navy would contribute men and equipment. The Army, in the form of the 38th Infantry Division, commanded by Lieutenant General Sano Tadayoshi, comprised of three infantry regiments, the 228th under Colonel Dai Tihichi, the 229th under Colonel Tanaka Ryosuboru, and the 230th under Colonel Soji Toshiiki. The 38th Infantry had at least 20,000 men, already outnumbering the defenders. But as Lieutenant General Sano knew that Hong Kong would have to be shelled in order to make it capitulate, additional 15-centimeter and 24-centimeter howitzers were brought in with their crews. The number of invaders was growing. But that number would grow even more. When the Japanese found out about the recently arrived Canadians, Lieutenant General Sano's superior, Lieutenant General Sakai, asked for more men. If Imperial Headquarters wanted the 10-day timescale of Operation C, the name given to the Battle of Hong Kong, adhered to. The Imperial staff grumbled, as they always did, but the 19th and 20th Mixed Brigades, another five infantry battalions worth, with their own field artillery, was attached to the Hong Kong operation. Japan's naval forces in this operation could be called their potential Achilles heel, as the British reportedly had three destroyers nearby, though they dated back to the Great War. But there were other ways to counter this, besides more Japanese naval units. Divided into two parts, half of the Japanese naval force would focus on bombarding, while the other helped with the coming offensive. The ships themselves were only light cruisers and torpedo boats, but Vice Admiral Nimi had an ace up his sleeve. As the Navy was involved, and Vice Admiral Nimi Masaichi, the local commander, did not trust the Army's air arm to protect his ships, and his special naval landing forces that would feint attacks on the southern end of the island, the Admiral brought in Navy air power. This consisted of 34 Type 98 Mary light bombers, 13 Type 97 Nate fighters, 3 Babs command reconnaissance planes, and 6 Ida observation planes. Though impressive relative to British air power, the planes were not Nimi's ace. Thinking way ahead, years before the invasion, the Japanese stationed intelligence officers and sleeper agents around Hong Kong. Like at Pearl, these people would listen, measure distances, and map military installations. In fact, their work was so successful that when senior British officers were taken to POW camps, they were met there by the barber from the Peninsula Hotel and their tailor, who were really Japanese naval officers. Moreover, the Japanese also purchased the loyalty of the Hong Kong gangs to act as auxiliary forces when the fighting started. Yet Malti thought he had his own ace once the two additional Canadian battalions showed up in November. These additional reinforcements would allow him to strengthen the Jin Drinker's line. Thus, his command was split into two groups. The Island Brigade, under Brigadier John Lawson, 
which would hold Hong Kong, while Mainland Brigade, under Brigadier Cedric Wallace, operated to the north. The Gin Drinkers Line ran along the mountains of Kowloon Peninsula, but had its weak points. The heights did not run along the entire line and could be maneuvered around, not to mention the Custom Pass and a large gap elsewhere. To combat this, the Japanese attack plan, Operation C, was relatively straightforward, as they had the superiority in men and equipment. First, a naval blockade would be set up. Then an air attack would come in, hitting key facilities and wipe out the enemy's aircraft. Only then would the 38th Infantry Division come south in three columns. This way, the Commonwealth forces on the mainland, north of the island, would be captured, killed, or pushed back. Then the island would be bombarded until it surrendered. But if the British were stubborn, then the noose would be tightened as the Japanese infantry columns simply pushed their way south. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. On December 7th, a Sunday, Major General Maltby was reading a passage during a church service. During this, a Lieutenant McGregor handed him a note. It seemed that Japanese forces were marching south out of Guangzhou, Canton, about 70 miles northwest of Hong Kong, as well as from the northeast, as Japanese troops were spotted landing by Chinese spies at Mears Bay. Maltby left the service right away and ordered his men to ready themselves, although they had been fully mobilized two days prior. And yet, many of his staff could not believe the reports that were coming in. There was talk of the astonishingly erroneous intelligence summary to the war office. The Japanese could not seriously consider starting a war with the British Empire, regardless of its weakened status as its war with Hitler and Mussolini waged on. The years of propaganda had affixed itself into many of their minds. Japanese soldiers were short-sighted and not quality fighters. After all, they had been battling the Chinese for years. And look how that was going. No, the Chinese were not respected for their fighting prowess either, which is why they were not taken seriously or allowed to train until recently. Either way, the truth would will out, as the Japanese were coming south in force. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, one, I apologize for this coming out so late, and two, I apologize that it's so short, but I just wanted to get one out before I go on my trip to Scotland with my family. Uh, when I get back, I will pick up with the the Battle of Hong Kong. Even though it's relatively short, there was a lot of uh, examples of bravery and courage in there um, that I just want to explore on both sides. Uh, the incredible uh, courage to go into any war. Um, but, um, so we'll get into that, and then obviously we'll zoom out and 
look more at the Pacific Theater and then, of course, get back to the European Theater. So I'll jump into all that when I get back. And for you members out there, we will continue on with our, I'll just call it the history of the Waffen-SS, uh, their exploits in the field, trying to prove themselves to the to their leaders and to the, uh, and to the regular army as well. Um, so the family and I will be heading to Scotland. So if you listen to this and let's see here, late July, you're in Edinburgh. Um, that's where I'll be for a couple days. And then we're heading to Inverness, I think the first few days of August. And then the, a couple days after that, we'll be on the Island of Skye. And then we'll head back down to Edinburgh, jump on a plane. We're going to be popping by the whatever Dublin, the airport in Dublin. I think I can't remember. Um, so yeah, if you're in there, just happen to happen to be in that area, come by and say hi. I'll be doing stuff on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I am bringing my daughters, which I would like to apologize for in advance. If you've been with me for a couple of years and you've listened to their commercials, you know what they're capable of. So forewarned. Um, that should be a lot of fun. And um, I think that might be it. Oh, um, as always, please check out, if you are so inclined, the podcastnetwork.com, the shows that I do with Cameron Riley. Um, we've done a lot of shows over the years. And I honestly have to say that before we started the Renaissance, I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. But there's a lot of incredible ideas, a lot of incredible experiences and people that we've been exploring. So that's been a lot of fun for me, a, a whole different world. Um, we've done the cold, we started the cold, cold War. I can't talk as I've been packing and editing and recording as fast as I can for the last couple of days, sorry. Um, which is kind of weird for me to do the Cold War because it's like in my future. So it's, it's kind of weird. Um, we've also done, um, you know, The Life of the Caesars. We've done uh, Augustus, uh, Julius Caesar, obviously. Uh, and, and now we are doing Tiberius. We've just killed off Sejanus. So that's been a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, just check out the thepodcastnetwork.com. And as far as the pronunciations on this particular show, I'd like to thank Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast. If I got them right, it's because of him. And if I got them wrong, it's it's because of me. So I like to thank Laszlo for his help. He's always willing to get an email at weird hours to help pronunciate something or explain something. And so he was helping me with the gin drinkers line, which I had never heard of before. So I'm looking forward to exploring that. And there are some incredible YouTube videos about it, which I made link on Facebook and Twitter. I can check that out. Uh, so anyway, so I'll be back as soon as I can jump back into things. Um, and then once we do this, then of course it's back to normal. So thank you for your patience. For those of you who have signed up for membership recently, for who have donated, maybe you're trying to help me buy as much whiskey in Scotland as I can, which of course I love you for. I will mention and give you shouts out on the next episode. I just wanted to get this out as soon as I possibly can. And as you can tell, I'm rambling, so that means the show's over. I will see you guys in about two weeks. Take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.